Welcome to episode 17 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded Monday, May 14th, 2007. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Spokesman. Welcome to another episode of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. I'm David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. With us today are Tim Grawl from Crooked Cog Network. Hey, Tim. Good morning. Also with us from Mozzie Bicycles, Tim Jackson. Good morning. And from Jolly Old England, Bike Biz Magazine, QuickRelease.tv, it's Carlton Reed. Hey, Carlton. Hi there, Jolly Old England. I don't know. <laughs> I told you, you know I, what we were saying earlier? We're unsophisticated what, Tim? <laughs> Cretans. That's what we are. Uh, guys, let's get right into the news because there was a lot going on uh, in the last couple of weeks when it comes to cycling. And, of course, we're recording this on Monday, May 14th. And for a lot of cycling fans, that's sort of a date that they've been looking forward to with some trepidation. Today's the day that the Floyd Landis begins in Malibu, California uh, with his hearing in front of the panel of USADA representatives. And Carlton, I thought since I know you've spent a lot of time looking at this, why don't you give everybody a bit of a, a preview of what they should be looking for this week, how many days we're talking about, how long it's going to be before we see a result? Uh, well, it's not over in a day, that's for sure. It's, uh, it's going to be a week uh, and plus. And it's going to be very dull for... For anybody thinking of sitting through a, a video cast of it, it's going to be very dull scientific data. Or they could throw it out in the in the first minute if they were doing a, a Landalus defense where uh, Landalus got off because uh, the 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 samples were 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 mucked up, and Landalus got off, uh, albeit the the arbitrators didn't like to let him off. They let him off. Same thing happened with Floyd. So technically, they could throw it out in the in the first uh, few minutes. That's not going to happen. I think WADA and USADA are going to fight with every muscle to nail Floyd on this one because their, their whole, their whole uh, doping shebang uh, rests on it. Videocast, you said. Where, where are we going to be able to find a videocast of this? Uh, it was $200 a day if you wanted to get your own uh, media video cast. So even Trust But Verify, which is the blog that's following um, this case and has been for many months, that they're not getting it. But they're going to be um, putting the, the various feeds up on, online when, when they get to hear about them. So that's uh, trustbut.com. Now, this is an, an open hearing. I mean, it's in Malibu, California, which USADA is not based mm. there. WADA is not based there. How did that come about? I believe it's uh, Floyd's request. It's the Pepperdine University, and uh, I guess it's not too far away from uh, where Floyd lives, and uh, he's requested it there. But they were also searching around for uh, a venue which had really good uh, media um, plug-ins, so we can get the Wi-Fi, you can get the uh, TV cameras, and you can get all the broadband uh, access for the media. So he, he very much wanted it to be extremely open. And uh, at the time, I think USADA was actually trying to get it moved to somewhere that might not have been quite so media friendly. Um, so Floyd wanted it somewhere where the, the eyes of the world could see it. 
I've, I've been to the, the center where they're having it at Pepperdine. I went to a meeting there, and it's, it's probably one of the most technologically advanced meeting places I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not exactly close to Floyd's house. I would say, what, Tim Jackson? Probably take him about three hours to get there from his home. Yeah, probably in that range. Yeah. Uh, well, unless he's on roids, then it'll be an hour. <laughs> Touche. Uh, Carlton, how long until we think that we'll, we'll get a result in this? Nobody knows because we're in an uncharted territory because previous athletes, if they had the amount of evidence that Floyd's got, would, would, would get off. But uh, they can't afford uh, afford to let Floyd off. So the, the, the like the the pre um, hearing uh, stuff has gone against Floyd uh, two to one. The arbitrators have uh, have done it two to one. So Campbell uh, is the dissenting arbitrator, and that could be all the way uh, down the line. It could be two to one, two to one, two to one for everything, which just means uh, it's decided already because the. We know that the two other arbitrators have voted against Floyd straight away. So it could be over uh, quickly. Um, likely it won't be, and likely, very likely, that Floyd actually uh, will lose. And for clarification, there's, there's three people on this panel, arbitrators, judges, call them what you like. Um, two of them were chosen directly by USADA. One was chosen by Floyd Landis, and perhaps that might be why we're looking at the two-to-one. Right, Carlton? It, not not nearly uh, quite right, but not quite, in that uh, one is done by Floyd, which is Campbell, one is done by uh, USADA, and then they have to um, decide on the third one who's meant to be ultra-neutral. Of course, all these arbitrators are from the same pool, so finding a, a neutral arbitrator is, is pretty much impossible. So they eventually landed on one guy, who uh, Floyd's side rejected. So as a compromise, they went for this Canadian guy called Brunei, and uh, they've got him. But, you know, there's only one uh, person out there who would dissent anyway, and that's Campbell. So that, that's who he's got. But the other two are pretty much um, USADA people. Now, one of the things that, that came up in the media in the last few days was the story that says that uh, Floyd was told that he could, he could basically negotiate a lesser sentence I think the quote I saw was the the shortest suspension that they've ever given if he gave up information on Lance Armstrong. Um, Carlton, you indicated that you thought that this was a smokescreen by Landis's side? Well, potentially. I mean, it, it, Floyd never majored on it. It was never a press release. It was never a big thing. It just came out as a sideline in a press conference. And, and, and I know Landis's people were quite annoyed that that was the bit that all the media went wild on. I mean, you mentioned Lance and wow, you know, it's huge news. Yeah. And they were trying to get across their, their point of view. And it just it, it, it went to, to, to Lance. And it was like, oh, this is two years old already. Come on. Uh, Tim Jackson, what do you what do you think about that? What, what do you make of the fact that, that they might have been asking for dirt on on Lance? Uh, I think if they were, then that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty crappy, um, and and certainly paints the whole situation with a very negative brush. I, I think, like Carlton, that it's uh, I don't know the the timing for me. The timing is suspect, and. And again, I like Floyd, and I really, really, really want to believe that, that he's completely innocent of these charges. And he's, he's certainly um, innocent or guilty being uh, drugged through a really 
poorly operated and run system that it, it just takes away its credibility. That said, um, I don't really know what to make about the, the Armstrong allegation because it, it just it seems so laughable. But it does seem like something that could have happened with this because the, the, the whole thing has been so ham-handed. There hasn't been anything graceful about this entire process. Well, it, it, was at the, it was at the start, by the way. It, it was right at the start. It wasn't, you know, this is not something that they did, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. This was right yeah. at the beginning. That's when, um, uh, the allegedly, uh, the uh, Tigart, uh, the USADA guy, approached Landis's lawyer and said, we'll give your client this if he gives us this. So that was right at the beginning, before it got dirty. Mm -hmm. don't, don't you think, though, if, if you know, I have a hard time with this one, because on the one hand, if this happened right at the beginning of this whole Floyd Landis affair, I almost feel like it would have come out sooner, on the one hand. Yeah. On the other hand, if it did happen, I'm with Tim Jackson. I think it calls the, it calls the entire process into further question. Uh, we've, right. we've all been questioning the process all along, but if this actually occurred, then it, 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 it's it's all just a, a plot to get Lance. I mean, that's I, I think it's normal, isn't it? This is this is normal lawyer stuff. This is plea bargaining. This is not uh, anything unusual. That's why nobody's really in in either side is nobody's kicking up a fuss. This is extremely normal, both in drug cases and in arbitration cases. Well, but Carlton, plea bargaining is. Um, if you stand up and say yes, you did it, then we'll, you know, and then we don't have to go through this lengthy trial and spend all this time and the taxpayers' money, etc. Then in that case, we'll give you a lesser, uh, uh, a lesser penalty. In this case, it's if you give up this guy who against whom we have no evidence that he did anything. Uh, if you'll give us some some evidence that we've been looking for for years and years and years, then I, I don't know. Like what turning states evidence? This is all of a sudden a mob trial. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's it, <laughs> got Tim on that one. <laughs> it it ahead, doesn't Carl. surprise well, I mean, me. Was it? This is well, This is two years old anyway. Like the the earliest it could have been with Lance was two years ago. I don't understand why they're they're so worried about it. it they obviously didn't catch him. So why keep trying? Oh, because they're positive that nobody ever could have been that dominant, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. No one can be that good and be clean. He's hey, the, even people like Bradley Wiggins think that. You know. He's quoted as saying, how can uh, Floyd have uh, beaten me by 52 minutes on, on that stage, forgetting the fact that the, uh, the group behind Landis was 42 minutes ahead of Bradley. So even, even really top-class riders think there's, there's something wrong when somebody else is better than them. And you see Wiggins isn't even French. Yeah, that's, that's, that's positive for him. <laughs> Well, I think it's... I don't know. Uh, that red-white-blue coloring looks a little like the red-white-blue of the French flag. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that either way that this goes this week, uh, I, I think the entire, the entire process it has been called into question, and there has got to be some reform of this process. And I don't think anybody disagrees on that, on either side. It's make or break for both parties, and the stakes are far, far higher for WADA and USADA. And it all boils down to uh, next year, which is the Olympics. If the world's uh, doping regime falls down this week, nothing will replace it in time for the Olympics. So the stakes are amazingly high. They've got to nail Floyd. No matter 
about any of the evidence, no matter about anything else, they've got to nail him just to keep the doping regime in place for Beijing. Well, two things. Number one, I think that the stakes are incredibly high for Floyd because this, this ends his career. Uh, if, that's if, that's yeah, one yeah. person. That's one person. I, I, it's personally important to him. It's personally important to cycling. In, in the whole spread of the, the whole world of sport and the billions that get pumped into the Olympics, I'm afraid Floyd is a, just a very small part. Agreed. Uh, but to your other point, um, I think that, 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 the, that the doping regime or the anti-doping regime already has fallen down and already is uh, in question. And I think that, mm. that, that it already needs reform. No matter how this case comes out, even if they, they nail Floyd to the wall, uh, the entire way that they do business needs to change. And I think the whole world uh, or a lot of folks in the world already believe that. It's the stuff that had come out that I never knew, like the the Scottish guy, the the, the skier, who won uh, bronze, the first guy to, to Scottish guy to win a, a, an Olympic medal for God knows how long. He had uh, a VIX uh, in nasal inhaler, and in America, the inhaler has a banned substance which he didn't know about, and in the UK, where he normally buys his VIX, it doesn't. So he took this inhaler, bought it in America, inhaled it. The, the, the substance he took was nowhere near the performance-enhancing threshold. He still got his medal taken away from him. He still got a ban. These things are clearly ludicrous. There's no leeway in the system. It's a closed-loop system, and it must change. And it's opened lots of people's eyes to this, mostly in America. In the UK, we're still, still just blind to all of this. Um, but thankfully, in America, you are actually open to, to what's happening, and maybe the, the, the cash can be turned off. To stop paying these people until they close their, um, reform their system. And I'll tell you what, I've never seen so many newspaper articles in mainstream newspapers as I have in the last few days about mm. doping, about anti-doping, about cycling, of course, in a negative way. Um, everything from the USA Today to the Wall Street Journal and, and everywhere in between. Uh, this is something that's being talked about now. And you're right. I think with the Olympics coming up, I think with uh, Barry Bonds uh, about to, to break a record, uh, I think that, that this is something that's being talked about here. Now, now we're talking about people who doped. What about people who attempt to dope? <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody heard of attempted doping before the last two weeks? Oh, that is just so sad. That whole story just kills me. So uh, why don't you tell us what's going on, Tim? Uh, well, I, I love it that, you know, Basso gets out of his contract with Discovery saying, well, you know, I don't want to, you know, bother the team with this cloud of controversy. And then it comes out that he goes to the, to, to Coney, the uh, Italian Olympic committee and, and confesses to the doping and says, yeah, <laughs> you got me. Those are my blags of blood. I'm Barrio. <laughs> you caught me. But here's the caveat. I never actually doped. All of my wins were clean. I was just getting ready to dope at the tour. And his comment was something about, you know, attempted doping is tantamount to actual doping. Well, yeah, but that's the lamest story I've heard in all of the doping tales. Are you saying you don't believe that he only just attempted to dope? What's that? Are you saying you don't believe that it was attempted doping? No, I don't believe that it was attempted (laughs) doping. I don't believe he's confessing to attempted doping because he didn't get caught for it attempted doping right i mean i don't know because you know at least in the u.s you can own a handgun but it doesn't mean you were going to attempt murder 
So, in the WADA code, though, it's attempted is is exactly the same. You get the same penalties. Everything's exactly the same. So that's why they can they can get him because it's attempted doping, and that's against the regulations. Yes, I I, I would agree that 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 it's. I I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I listen. I have a hard time swallowing this story. Listen, it I, it, I it taints yet another grand tour, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think that the, the, the director of the... You full of drugs at, in your room. Like, uh, oh, geez, who was that, Carlton, at the Giro several years ago who did? The Italian writer for Fossible, <laughs> who, who got caught with the uh, suitcase full of drugs. Who said, I hadn't used them yet. <laughs> but there's so many, I couldn't even pin it down. Oh, I know, I know. He retired a couple years ago, I think, finally. Mm. Uh, oh, well. Um, I think he was leading the Giro. No, I don't, I don't think he was leading the Giro at the time. Anyway, same sort of situation. In, in that situation, yeah, you get popped with a suitcase full of, of drugs or that your team director gets caught with a crowd full of uh, bags of blood. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Then, yeah, that's an attempted doping offense that, that actually gets you thrown out of a race. And, and I, just, I, just, I just hate Basso's story. I had so much more respect for him when I thought he was just coming clean. Okay, well, how about the fact that uh, uh, Tyler Hamilton, who now uh, is back in cycling, is all of a sudden uh, not racing the Giro? Yeah, Uh, that's heartbreaking, too. He gets gets a rough press, does Tyler. I'm not going to defend him, but how many of you saw in the press when he was challenged to provide his DNA by, by the journalists, he pulled some hair out of his head and said, go on, then test it. I, I'm, I'm willing to be tested. It never gets reported. Um, Tyler is another one of these people, unfortunately uh, a cyclist, who has been convicted and will never, ever, ever live that down, despite the potentially... Um, uh, dirty stuff that we've seen in the Floyd case being in, in, in his case Campbell is the the arbitrator who um, is on Floyd's not not his side but is is, is going to be appointed by Floyd in, in his case and Campbell is the guy that was in the Hamilton case and if you ever want an eye-opening um, document go to see the the Campbell uh, dissent in the Tyler Hamilton case. It's, it's like 14, 15 pages worth of dissent where it's far from just being um, the vanishing twin. You know, we, we get this impression of that was, that was his only defense. He had a huge defense, but it all got uh, done in private, so we never actually saw it. And what Tyler would like to have done is what Floyd's done, which has made it public. Well, maybe Floyd learned from Tyler's case. And others. You did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah, I would have to say. Well, let's move on because I think we're all a little bit tired of talking about doping. And let's go to something a little bit more fun. Hey, Tim Grawl, you you took part in something recently that that I was really intrigued in. You did a 24-hour race. And I thought that you you might just sort of explain for people, before we get into it, for people who aren't very familiar with 24-hour racing, what is it? Uh, well, first off, I did a 12-hour race, oh, okay. uh, and and then I didn't even finish it. So I didn't really do the 24 hours. But basically, endurance racing is um, the biggest grassroots scene in mountain biking right now, and the biggest thing is because it's not has doesn't have any kind of UCI governing or anything like that. And um, so it's basically I've now participated in two of them. And they're just a lot of fun for uh, normal mountain bikers to get together. Uh, you can race them on teams or solo or single speed, just kind of like any other races. 
And um, and then also you have the people that actually race them to win. And I was kind of inspired as well by the new movie that came out called 24 Solo. And it was about um, Chris Etoff uh, and how he was going for his uh, seventh national championship and that sort of thing. And uh, But anyway, it's these races, it's just all about endurance, seeing how long you can last. And again, a lot of times it's just uh, a big party in between your laps and that sort of thing. But I wanted to see how long I could last on a bike. Uh, so I went out there and I raced and I lasted about eight hours and basically gave in because I didn't do a good job with my nutrition and hydration. I started getting dehydrated. But um, but it was a lot of fun and it gave me even more respect for the people that not only stay on a bike for 24 hours but actually you know are in a hurry while they're doing it. So <laughs> so when, when, when somebody does one of these, I mean if it's a 12-hour event or a 24-hour event, if they're doing it solo, they're literally on the bike that entire time? Pretty much. If if you're interested at all, you have to watch the movie 24 Solo. You can go to 24-solo.com, and you kind of get a feel for what they do. Um, the guys that are racing it for real, I mean, they have they have two bikes, and they'll roll in from a lap and immediately jump on the next bike and just stuff food in their pocket and new water bottles and keep on rolling. So they'll sometimes race, and a lot of times it'll go past 24 hours because they'll go out for a lap right before uh, the 24-hour call, and they have to finish that lap. So sometimes it approaches 25 hours, and they ride the whole time. That is killer. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be yeah. really, really tough. Oh, it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, I can't. I honestly don't know of a more grueling sport or a more grueling kind of competition because you are – racing and it's mountain biking so it's not flat paved roads it's mm. climbs and it's rocks and it's roots and it's through the woods and so your mistakes start hurting a little bit more when you know trees and rocks are involved well, i was going to say doesn't it get just a little bit dangerous toward the end while everybody's just really tired and you know seeing things out there that don't actually exist and <laughs> I, yeah I see I, I i don't know i mean i don't I, I, it's hard for me to speak because I've really only I've I've participated in one other, but I was on a team of five people, uh, and so doing it myself, I started getting a little dehydrated because basically I just forgot to uh, to drink enough and eat enough, and so yeah, my mind started to kind of go into mush. I was running into stuff and falling over when I shouldn't have, so that's kind of why I quit. But I don't know. I mean. Racing the first three times is on Energizer time. Bunny on their handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you hear... done... Go ahead, Carl. Go ahead. I've, I've done solo events, 24 hour events, and the first time I did it, I thought I would hallucinate. And I took it very slowly and just tried to get through the whole 24 hours with, with, with riding it. And it was absolutely fine. I didn't have any problems with, with seeing big bunnies or, or the were collapsing it was just a case of just grinding it out uh, the second time I did it I was able to go a bit faster because I knew I wouldn't hallucinate and then it becomes just this amazing you just you just you clock watching right there's the first hour and then so on and, until you get to 24 and there is such I mean, in fact it's, it's no other form of cycle sport that I've done where the wave of euphoria <laughs> overtakes you when you've done your final lap on the final 24 hours because it is such an achievement to have lasted that length of time and you, you just collapse and you don't 
then suddenly sleep, you're still euphoric. So it's a huge buzz to do these events. Hmm. And, you know, when I first did a, a, a long-distance road ride, you know, I did my first century, for instance. You know, I thought that was that was a huge achievement. But, you know, <laughs> I was only on the bike for a few hours compared to something like this. And and I would just think that this would just be a killer. And you're right. I, I remember how euphoric I was at the end of a century. But to, to do 24 hours on a bike, uh, you've got to just be stoked. Well, it's the, the funny neat thing. Have you heard the the story? I forgot his name now. The guy, the first guy that raced one solo, um, they were having twenty four hour events, but you had to have a team of four. Oh, and it was the, John Stansted. The, yeah, that's right. And his, the race he promoter wouldn't let him. Oh, was it? Yeah. And the race promoter wouldn't let him enter, and so he just sent in four entries with his name on it on one team. <laughs> yeah. And just showed up and raced the whole thing himself. <laughs> And he still beat uh, over half the teams that were there. Mm. Yeah, the, the neat, See, I'm the not neat thing about interested in being that good. <laughs> <laughs> the really good thing about twenty-four hour races is you can take part and you can actually get quite high up the field because so many people drop out. So if you've got a field of fifty soloists, if you just last the distance, you could be the slowest rider in the world, but if you last the distance, you'll be 20th. So it's a fantastic race if you want to get on the result. <laughs> it's like I went to a mountain bike race one time for, for work, and uh, I had my bike with me. And, and in my, my age category and in my, my um, division, uh, there were only two other riders that were doing it. So psh, coming mm. in third was no problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was, that was an easy thing to do. Hey, hey Carlton, you went to see something recently, and, and you, you, you showed it on your uh, video on your website at quickrelease.tv. And it was mm. something that, that we were all sort of interested in. It was a, a free ride event, sort of just a demonstration of trick cycling, if you will. Tell us about that, and, and, and maybe we can talk about, after you've, you've given us a preview of what it was, tell us a little bit about... Uh, whether or not you think that this actually helps the sport of cycling. Well, it, it, it's a, it was an event sponsored by Nissan, and uh, they've got this car, I believe it's called the Rogue in America. It's an SUV, but in this country, it's called the Qashqai. And they sponsored this bike event, and they spent millions of dollars on this bike event, and they're taking it to a whole cities, Madrid, Paris, Cologne, uh, Milan, and... And then it happened to be in my hometown, Newcastle, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I went along to it. And there were, there were people there who have never seen this free riding, because it's normally out, held out in the boondocks. They'd never seen it up close before, and they were incredibly excited. So as well as your, your hardcore free riders coming along to see the, the, the world's best uh, 25 free riders compete, there was people who were just really turned on by cycling all of a sudden. And I guess my question would be, you know, is this circus cycling? Is this just uh, you know, a, a, a something that never actually translates to new people getting on bikes or, in inverted commas, becoming cyclists? Is it just something that is a, a demo sport and just looks good but doesn't actually attract anybody into the, the sport that we all love? Tim Jackson, what does, do you think? I think it does have some spillover. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at, you know, my son, for example, he's 14, going to be 15, and he's certainly within that target demographic of events like the Red Bull and and uh, what what Carlton was just at, and uh, those things are you know energizing. 
it, it's they're cool to watch. Uh, it, it's it's pretty amazing what you can do on a bike, and I think that it does have some spillover. I, I think that you know he sees something like that, and you know he wants to do that. He wants to go huck a bike off a ledge, and you know I'd rather he didn't. Hmm. Um, but it it gets him interested in the sport itself, and I think that there will be some carryover interest. Some people who wouldn't have looked at cycling at all might look at the extreme side of it, and because they're willing to look at the extreme side, they're more willing than they would have been otherwise to look at events like the tour or even the local criterium that happens to be in their town. So I, I think it I think it is good overall. And you know as as an industry per se, uh, skipping the the sport aspect of it, uh, we do see that there's some people getting pulled in from from other areas that might not have otherwise. Hey Carlton, did you take your kids when you went to see this? Yeah, I went on the preview day, and I was just videoing by myself. And then the next day, uh, I took my kids, and and they were able to watch what four or five hours of 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 this, and were totally enthused. But they're of course totally enthused about any form of cycling. So they go to the Tour de France, they go everywhere. But this was just uh, the, the same kind of event for them as other forms of cycling. They just got very very excited about it. But my son's friends at school, for instance, I told them about it. They went, and they were just as enthused as my cycle mad kids. So yes, it, it, it's worked that level. Hmm. Tim Grawl, you think that that, that that events like this are are good for cycling? Good to bring more more consumers into our sports? Yeah, I think anything that has to do with bikes is good in the first place. And then I think. As we've talked about, the target demographic is the younger crowd. Mm-hmm. Well, as if they get used to riding bikes, even if it's the uh, free ride type riding, but they start hitting their older years where it hurts a little more when you fall, mm-hmm. they might turn to picking up a bike for other reasons. I think anytime you get people on bikes, it's it's a good thing. And while this is, I think it is more of a spectator sport like the X Games or something like that where a lot of people watching just are watching for the spectating uh, part of it. I think long-term it does get more people on bikes, and so it's definitely a good thing. Well, let me ask it this way. Tim Grawl, what was your, what was your first entry into, into cycling? I mean, were you doing BMX? Were you doing – what kind of uh, bikes were, were you riding when you were a kid? Well, um I can't remember riding a bike past the age of maybe 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just had bikes that I rode around the neighborhood, and that was about it. And then um, when I was, I think it was about four years ago now, so 21, 22, um, a buddy of mine bought two cheap mongoose bikes at Dick's because they were on sale, and he wanted to get in shape. So I started riding one of those, and that's how I got back into mountain biking. So I got back in through it through just picking up a bike and I had run out of once I got out of my house uh, and I graduated from college the money for snow skiing downhill skiing stopped coming in Mm -hmm. so I had to pick something up that I could do in my backyard instead of traveling to Utah so I picked up a mountain bike interesting Carlton how'd you what was what was your first bike and and I mean were you were you trying to emulate something that you had seen or, or trying to do tricks what were you doing I was age 17 and all my friends were getting, that's when you get a driving license mm-hmm. in, in the UK. And they were all going to get driving license. And then ever the, the contrarian, I decided to do something completely different. So I went and got a touring bike. 
and uh, I started time trialing on it for some weird reason, but then eventually did actually um, go touring on it for a couple of years. Hmm. And, and, and did some writing while you were doing that as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, tons of, yeah. Tons of writing. Right. Hey, Tim Jackson, your first bike, what, what, kind of, what kind of riding were you doing? <laughs> My first bike, uh, I got that when I was uh, probably just before I turned six. Uh, it was a Christmas present. It was a J.C. Penny, looked like a Schwinn Stingray. It was <clears throat> the front half of it was painted to look like uh, blue jeans, complete with the stitching. Uh, the back half of it was like a metal flake orange, and it had a uh, an orange sparkle vinyl saddle. And it was too big for me, so I was constantly running into things <laughs> because I just I could barely leap the pedals and I could hardly steer it. But uh, that that launched me into an endless string of bikes. And I've essentially haven't been off of one since. <clears throat> See, it's, it, what got me into racing was when I was 12 years old, <clears throat> I saw the movie breaking away and I felt just absolutely fell in love with that. Huh. I don't know why. I don't know why I connected to the, the main character who wrote a Mozzie, of course. Um, <laughs> I, I, it, it just took me and I've been, I've been in it ever since. Were you living near Corey at the time? <laughs> no, we didn't have any in South Alabama at the time. You see, for me, well, I, when did, I, I, I when did you own your first Mozzie? Uh, good question. Uh, not uh, about two years before I got the job at Mozzie. When I was at when I was working at Canary, I got my first Mozzie frame. I had lusted after them all of my life, uh, or what seems like all of my life. And uh, then one of my friends who got me the job there, who is now my product manager at Mozzie. Um, had a frame that was a prototype frame that wasn't being used that happened to be my size and said, you want it? And I almost fell over saying yes. And uh, the rest is history. Hmm. And David, how about you? Yeah, for me, my first bike was very similar to the one that that, that Tim Jackson was just talking about. I think it may have been a Stingray. Um, you know the sparkly saddle and all of that, and and I always was trying to to do sort of BMXy t- t- kinds of things. You know, my friends and I mm. would set up jumps in the backyard and and really injure ourselves really bad and try to go home and hide the injuries from our parents, <laughs> and uh, you know those kinds of crazy things. And then I probably was off my bike from the time I was probably thirteen or fourteen until I was in my early twenties when I first got my first job in in the bike business and got into to mountain bike racing, um, and then from there. In the last five or six years, really heavy into into road racing, but but I asked the question and I, and and I got into it because I was thinking about Carlton's kids and about the other kids who probably went to see this this event and the kids that I I see when you go to whether it's the Tour of California or various mountain bike races. I remember when I used to go to mountain bike races and see Hans Ray, and he mm-hmm. would be doing trialing, and I would think you know that's really really cool. And then you'd see kids out in the parking lot trying to do what he had just been doing, and of course injuring themselves and probably going home and trying to hide those injuries from mm. their parents. But um, yeah, I, I tend to think that these things probably do have a positive impact, uh, especially on the younger generations, because mm. they go out and they see people doing these sorts of things, people making money doing these sorts of things, and um, you know, they try to emulate it. And I think that in the end, as long as they don't get injured, that's a good thing. Well, as long as they don't get yeah. injured too bad, because we all learn from our, our injuries, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Hans Ray was there. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, taking photographs, and he looks pretty slim. And no idea how much bike riding he's doing at the moment. But he he was there, and he was like high fiving all of the the riders who clearly look up to him as the 
probably the person who started them into this. And, and I have to yeah, tell you, I, I sort of the godfather of free ride. I used to sponsor mm. him back in the early '90s, and he was the coolest guy. Uh, and just, and I think he's an amazing talent at mm-hmm. what he does. Mm-hmm. Well, he's in that video. In the, in, I did two videos. One from like the very same day as the 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 practice session, and then I did another video, which was two days combined. And hands raised, and that uh, second one fleeting. But it's it's he's wearing a GT T-shirt, so you can you can tell. Well, we'll put the the links to the videos in the show notes, so everybody can go check those out. Um, Speaking of, of, of people to emulate, something that I'm sure Tim Jackson can tell us all about, uh, Chris Hoy had a, had a pretty interesting uh, couple of days. God, he had a heartbreaking weekend. <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> to be that close. Okay, Chris Hoy went to uh, La Paz, Bolivia, to the, the highest velodrome in the world, to try and break the seven-year-old world record for the uh, kilometer. And... On Saturday, he was, what was it, Carlton, like 0.282 seconds off of the record. It's and, two thousandths for the second, isn't it? He's like, it was just I mean, so it's close. Just it's just silly. Oh, it's not even that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like a, a fraction of a blink. It was just insane mm. to be that close. And such an incredible event. I mean, the kilo, one kilometer at full-out effort. Everything about the kilo has to be perfect. So you know when, when Hoy is that close, he's doing everything Perfect. From the if, if you read on to the finish, you can't you can't go any harder. And it just proves he's how, probably going to get it. I hope he does. I really do. He's I there for another few days. And if, yeah, yeah. His, his dad was saying that uh, the weather conditions. If you read on the blog, they were really not right that day for doing the the attempt. And then it warmed up just a little bit, and they went, "Oh, go on then." And then by the time they got Chris warmed up. It had dropped again, and he's still got that close. Yeah. So all it needs is another couple of days where the, the weather's fantastic, and I think he'll, he'll do it. Of course, he has got the 500 meters, so right, that's one right. thing he's got. Yeah, 500 meters in less than 25 seconds. I mean, mm. that's insane. From a standing I start. Do- oh, no, that was actually a flying start. Oh, it was a flying start, okay. Yeah, for the 500 meter. The, I do it about, about 26. So it's going really well. What's that? I do it in about 26, 27. Really? Yeah, minutes, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the kilo is a standing start and the 500 meters a flying start. Correct. Okay. Still, and that's really is, fast. St- yeah, that's still really, really fast. You know, it, it, with him doing this this weekend, it, it reminded me of the movie I saw last week, which I guess Carlton's going to be seeing tomorrow, which hopefully the rest of the world will be able to see soon which is The Flying Scotsman, which is the story of, of Graham Obrey, who is a Scottish cyclist who is known for, among other things, breaking the hour record on a bike. And times. Yes, exactly right. And, and just an amazing talent, uh, raw talent. This was somebody who, who came up from uh, almost nowhere, uh, built his own bicycles out of washing machine parts, and at the same time was also battling depression. Uh, just an, an amazing story, and unfortunately one which I think few people may end up seeing, because when, when I went to see it last week, uh, the movie's only showing in maybe a handful of cities here in the United States. And the day I went, it was me and one other person in a very large, mm-hmm. empty movie theater. 
So that was that was a little bit disappointing. But it's if for those of you that are, are cycling fans, whether you're you're into the track uh, or not, this was a really great story. And I was saying before we started, I'm not sure whether I liked it because it was a great movie or whether I liked it because I'm a cycling fan. Uh, and I think it was a bit of both. I think it, I think it's a really good movie and it, it's a captivating story. Uh, but if you're a cyclist, I think it's even better. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The story of Obrey is really so impressive, and and I. I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen the trailer for the movie, and they do a good job of, of highlighting the the moment where he's watching the washing machine, where he, <laughs> where he ultimately <laughs> digs out a part for the bottom bracket of the bike, and that's such a fabled piece of history that is just, I I think one of the essential elements of the story of Graham Obrey, as as goofy as that sounds, because it does, it does highlight the the ingenuity that the guy had. Well, it's, it's classic Hollywood in that it's you know underdog comes from behind, yeah. and, and 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 it's strange in that the 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 kind of the villain of the piece is of course Chris Boardman, mm. who he's portrayed yeah. as somebody who's got loads of money behind him and, and what have you, and he's the evil Englishman. So there is there is themes here that Hollywood have played with many times before, like in previous England v Scotland movies, but here it is played out uh, with cyclists. But I, I've seen on YouTube you can see the the trailer and the. The Stephen Burkhoff plays the Hein Verbruggen boss of the the UCI. I know it's and the WCF role. I, I want one of those jerseys, the WCF <laughs> uh, thing on the side of the arm. That's just fantastic. World Cycling Federation. So it makes it sound like the World Wrestling Federation, isn't it? Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. But he's playing. A, he's playing a real. Baddie is Stephen Burkhoff, mm-hmm. and uh, Hayne Verbruggen must not have been terribly happy with that movie, which makes it a great movie. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. What happened with that? I mean, did the UCI just say you may not use our name? Well, the other things in the movie are brand names, you know, like uh, Specialized is all over the movie. So, yeah. yeah, I think they were just playing safe because they were being so naughty to them. They decided to, to rename it, and of course, Heinverbruggen is Dutch, not German. But mm-hmm. I, I still think it's extremely close to the to reality there. So, top notch. Yeah, it d- did not make the UCI look very good at <laughs> all. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I think I sent an email to Carlton. And I said something like, you know, it reminded me a lot of you know some other cyclist that that the UCI was going after. I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. So it was. Uh, it was it was a good movie. If if you get a chance, if it comes to your city, go see it. I think that you'll enjoy it, and uh, you know, uh, put a few more than two people into those movie theater seats. It'd be yes, good please. Thing. Hey, Carlton, one more thing, really, really quickly. Tell us about this degree that you can get in cycling, because I want one of these. Yeah, sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, the the headline was a bit. Uh, uh leading of me you know get a degree in cycling but of course it's just a coaching course but it is apparently unless somebody else out there can correct us it is meant to be the first actual university degree course in cycle specific coaching so it's been tagged onto a sports coaching uh, degree but with lots and lots of uh, cycling modules so that's how they can they can name it so so yeah, cracking. Is there a lot of chemistry courses in that too? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, blood. You've got to be really good at syringes. It's like yeah. a, a, okay. a lot of hands-on. <laughs> Testosterone 101. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like well, I don't know why just... it's heavy in biology and chemistry. It just seems weird. <laughs> yeah. No wonder British cyclists keep winning medals on the track. <laughs> 
Okay, I, I I didn't I didn't tease this at all. So you know, if I've got to cut this part out, I'll I'll do it. But anybody have a rant or a tip this week? A rant or a tip? Yeah. Oh. Stay silent, then he won't ask again. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, actually looked one up beforehand. Uh, Tim and, and Tim. I actually I actually got an email from a friend here who listened to the show last time and heard me groan about the tips. So he sent me five different tips. <laughs> so All right, then, five then, shows in a row. Tim Graw, let's hear yours. You looked it up before the show. Okay. Um, this is uh, from Brad Cartusio, who's been writing for Blue Collar. He's from Dirt Rag, and uh, he's writing for one of the sites now. And he says, one of the simplest and certainly cheapest ways to implement uh, this advice is if you're trying to eye up something on your bicycle, hold a light-colored piece of paper behind it, whether trying to determine proper chain line, adjusting brake pad clearance, or diagnosing an odd rubbing sound in a component. This makes it easier to see every time, simple and effective. Hey, nice tip. I like that one. Mm -hmm. All right, Tim Jackson, only one of your five. You can save the rest for the next show. Okay, I'm just going to go straight through, and if he ends up listening, Ted, thank you. Uh, I'm going to just start at the top of his list because it's a good one because it's the kind of thing I do all the time. Uh, Sharpie, the wonderful marker maker, makes metallic uh, paint markers that are absolutely perfect for marking on, you know, black carbon seat post or whatever, your preferred saddle height or marking the tilt on the head of the seat post or marking the spot on the bar and stem so you get the angle just right. So uh, do yourself a favor and buy one of those. You know what? And, and the other thing that I use those for, um, you know, when you, I don't know what kind of cleats you've got on your road shoes, but I use the, the look Keo cleats mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know, you, you, you've got them dialed in there just right and then you need to change yeah. your cleats. It's a great way to mark your shoes so that you put your new cleats on in exactly the same spot. Yep, that's an excellent point as well. Yeah, that's great. All right, Carlton, you got anything? Uh, just to go get a friend like Tim Jackson's, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not giving you his email. Forget it. Well, well, if if my mate Simon is out there, uh, he listens to this, then he's got to email me five tips by next week. Or. No, that's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's his tip for the week: is get a friend who's got tips. Yeah. Okay, so mine's going to sound a little commercial, but um, it's something that that I used recently and thought it was excellent. I do have a Garmin Edge on my bike, and Garmin has this website called that they purchased a few years ago called Motion Based. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, and the great thing about it is you can go and you can post your your routes and and your results. And other people can access those. So recently there was a, a route here that I wanted to do but that I had never done before. I didn't want to get lost because it was way up in the Angeles National Forest. So I downloaded somebody's route and I put it right onto my Garmin. And the cool thing was uh, I'm one of these people who likes a rabbit, somebody in front of me that I can chase down and pass. And the great thing is that when you put this course onto your Garmin, it also puts their bike on there at their pace so that you can race them as you do this course. Oh, well, that's cool. It, which was really great. I mean, I smoked him by six miles by the time I was done with a 30-mile <laughs> ride. But it was great. I had a, it, was, it was an excellent way to know where I was going, um, to know the exact direction to go, and also to have a rabbit to chase. So it was a lot of fun. That's at motionbased.com. So that's not mm. bad for something we didn't tease. We all had tips. Can't complain. Anything else we want to talk about before we close this thing out, guys? Oh, geez. Uh, in 
well, assuming we, we are back in two weeks, we'll be almost done at the Giro d'Italia. And uh, all i got to say is, go Di Luca! Is that your prediction? I'm, I'm hoping. Because <laughs> I, I, I just I think the guy would be a very worthy winner of Giro. I think he'd be good for the Giro. Yeah. He's, an, he's a likable character. Hopefully I don't find a syringe in his arm or a bag of blood in his suitcase. Please, dear God, no one get caught this year. <laughs> Well, we'll see what happens. No one get caught or no one dope. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was telling, wasn't it? I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is what I'm saying. <laughs> and with that, we're going to say good afternoon, good morning, and good evening. So uh, we're just going to go down the list. Everybody, let us know uh, where, where you can be reached. Uh, Tim Grawl, tell us where you can be found. Uh, you can find my blog at crookedcog.com and the podcast is crookedcogpodcast.com or email me at tim at crookedcog.com. Excellent. Tim Jackson. Well, they can find me at Mozzie Guy, obviously. They can also find me at uh, the uh, Shut Up and Drink the Kool-Aid site. And they can find me at, uh, well, the corporate site is moziebikes.com, of course, and tjackson at moziebikes.com. Great. Drop me a note. Carl Always Green. glad to hear from people. You you can send tips to <laughs> <laughs> CarltonReed at Mac.com or watch videos at quickrelease.tv or see my news at uh, bikebiz.com. Excellent. And uh, I'm David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. And you can send me email anytime to thefredcast at gmail.com. Guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, if and when there is a, if and when, well, when there's a result in this Floyd Landis case that we've been talking about for so long, maybe we can get together and just do a real quick review um, and, and put that out there for the rest of the spokesman fans. Uh, and you know, that'll be at a moment's notice, so watch your feed. In the meantime, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for staying subscribed. Now get out there and ride.